Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series. My name is Alex Carter, I'm one of the newer members of the Inside the Boards team, and today I'll be flying solo and bringing you part two of our mini hematology review series. While the questions I'll be reviewing today were taken from a step two level question bank, they can be helpful, helpful review for anyone taking the internal medicine shelf exam or even step one or step three, as I'll also be reviewing some background information about the primary pathology being tested by each question. Today we'll cover a mix of frequently tested subjects, as well as some of the quote-unquote zebras, as we like to say in the medical world, that might score you a few extra points on your test. So, without further ado, let's get into some questions. As usual, I will start out with the interrogatory, so you can be primed for what to listen for before I read the full question stem. So our first interrogatory, which of the following steps must be taken in the management of this patient? A 63-year-old woman comes to the office due to progressive pain in her left leg and knee for the last four months. The pain does not relieve with acetaminophen anymore. She also reports back pain and headaches. It is not associated with swelling, redness, fever, or chills. Her other medical problems include hypertension and diabetes mellitus. She has no smoking or drinking history. Her temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, blood pressure is 130 over 90, the pulse is 90, and the respirations are 15. She looks well. Her mucous membranes are moist but pale. There is no lymphadenopathy. The chest and abdominal examinations are normal. Neurologic examination is unremarkable. Labs show a hemoglobin of 10, an MCV of 90, platelets of 250,000, and leukocytes of 7,000. An x-ray shows an osteolytic lesion in her left distal femur. Which of the following steps must be taken in the management of this patient? A. Serum protein electrophoresis. B. Bone marrow biopsy. C. Bone scan. Or D. Serum parathyroid hormone levels. So that was kind of a long question stem, so we'll review some of the pertinent positives. In summary, we have a 63-year-old woman with back pain, a normal acidic anemia, leg pain, and an x-ray that's showing some osteolytic lesions in her distal femur. What do we think is going on here? 
Well, knowing that this is a hematology podcast, I hope that you're concerned that this patient is presenting with some common symptoms of the condition multiple myeloma. So if we were to rewrite the interrogatory with this in mind, we could say, which of the following steps must be taken in the workup of this patient with suspected multiple myeloma? Given this, the correct answer here is A, serum protein electrophoresis, or SPEP, as it is often abbreviated. I'll go into why this is correct in just a bit, but first, let's rule out some of the distractors. So, the first distractor is a bone marrow biopsy. Definitely a tempting distractor, since a bone marrow biopsy ultimately will be required to confirm the diagnosis of multiple myeloma. It will show greater than 10% clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow, but this is an invasive procedure and it shouldn't be done as a first-line test in a patient with suspected disease. The next distractor is bone scan. Bone scans can be helpful at detecting osteoblastic lesions, such as those seen in prostate cancer, but osteolytic lesions like this patient is showing wouldn't be very uh, detectable on a bone scan, so this would not be helpful. And then lastly, we have PTH levels. This might be helpful in a patient who is presenting with osteopenia and hypercalcemia, but this patient has lytic lesions, which are really not a feature of hyperparathyroidism, so it's not going to help really determine the diagnosis in this patient. So we already said that the correct answer is A, serum protein electrophoresis. Now let's talk a little bit more about why that's correct, and to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about multiple myeloma just as an overview. So a multiple myeloma is a cancer of the plasma cells, which as we know, are the cells that secrete antibodies. Usually in multiple myeloma, the antibody that's being secreted is IgG, IgA, or just the light chain kappa or lambda. Patients will typically present with at least one of the classic CRAB symptoms, and CRAB standing for C, calcium elevation, which hypercalcemia can also be remembered with the mnemonic stones, bones, groans, or psychiatric overtones. Uh, the R in CRAB stands for renal disease, and that's going to be due to the light chains being deposited in the kidneys, causing some kidney disease, and it could also be due to the hypercalcemia that many of these patients experience. A is for anemia. It's typically a normocytic anemia, like we saw in this patient, and it could be due to underproduction because the bone marrow is just being kind of swamped out by all of these plasma cells. Or it could also be due to the kidney disease that we just talked about, in which case the patient might not be making as much erythropoietin to stimulate red blood cell production. Either way, you can get a normocytic anemia. And lastly, the B in CRAB stands for bone pain, which our patient has been experiencing. And usually this is characterized by osteolytic lesions, not osteoblastic, and they tend to be centrally located, so often in the vertebral column or some of the long bones in the leg, like this patient had it in her femur. Some less common presentations of multiple myeloma include neuropathy or carpal tunnel syndrome, which is due to the kind of secondary amyloidosis from all of those light chains being deposited throughout the body. Or you could also see some hyperviscosity symptoms like headache, blurry vision, or bloody nose, or bleeding from the mouth. Those neuropathy and the hyperviscosity is not necessarily typical for multiple myeloma, but some patients do present that way. In general, though, I want you to remember those crab symptoms as being the most important thing. How do we work up a patient with suspected crab symptoms or suspected multiple myeloma? 
Well, the first step, as we saw in this question, was to conduct an SPEP, or a serum protein electrophoresis. What are we looking for on our SPEP? Well, we're looking for a monoclonal spike, or an M spike, as it's sometimes referred to. And this corresponds to one particular protein being produced at abnormally high levels in the blood. Something to note here that always has tripped me up in the past is the M in M spike makes me think that it's due to IgM being produced. But actually, IgM is almost never the antibody that's produced by the plasma cells in multiple myeloma. Because that would make too much sense, right? In reality, it's actually caused by clones of IgG, IgA, or those light chains of the antibodies that's made by the cancerous plasma cells. Another thing you'd want to do in your workup is to conduct a peripheral smear, and that might show some Rouleau formation, which is stacking of the red blood cells. And the diagnosis of multiple myeloma can be confirmed with a bone marrow biopsy, which will show greater than 10% plasma cells in the bone marrow. So that's crowding out the other hematopoietic cells. So that's why these patients might present with anemia, or they might even have a leukopenia as well. Just a couple more things to mention in general about multiple myeloma for your test. Well, it's on the bad end of a spectrum of plasma cell disorders, ranging from the mildest being multiple gammopathy of unknown significance, or MGUS, as you might see it referred to, to the more concerning version of MGUS, which is called smoldering myeloma, and then to the most concerning being multiple myeloma. Both MGUS and smoldering myeloma they're characterized by M spikes on that SPEP, just like in multiple myeloma. But importantly, these patients don't have any of the CRAB findings. So they basically are making the proteins, but aren't having any symptoms. So they can usually be monitored with regular lab work and no treatment at this time. Speaking of treatment, how do we treat multiple myeloma? Typically, you start with high-dose chemotherapy, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. And just a thing to note, uh, the MGUS that I mentioned, patients with MGUS can be just monitored because they only have about a 1% risk of progressing to multiple myeloma each year. And the patients with smoldering myeloma have a 10% risk of progression to multiple myeloma. So it's something to keep monitoring with regular lab work, but it's not required to treat. Lastly, remember when I mentioned earlier that IgM is almost never the cause of that M-spike? Well, if you do see a patient who has an M-spike on their SPEP, and that M-spike is corresponding to specifically IgM, I want you to consider a condition called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And then lastly, one final pearl before we move on. The test may try to trip you up by suggesting that you look for proteins in the patient's urine, since they all have these antibodies floating around in their blood. Now, this isn't a wrong answer, and a urine protein electrophoresis, or UPEP, can be used much like an SPEP. But your run-of-the-mill urine dipstick that, you know, the one that they love to run like in the emergency department, it's actually not going to show protein. It'll be negative for increased protein because the dipstick measures mostly albumin and is less sensitive for the light chains that are characteristic of multiple myeloma. I forgot to mention earlier, by the way, that those light chains might be referred to on your test as Bentz-Jones proteins. So if you see Bentz-Jones proteins as one of your answer choices, they're just referring to those kappa or lambda proteins that are characteristic of multiple myeloma. All right, so between SPEPs, we've got CRABS, and MGUS, that was a lot of complex information and acronyms. So let's change gears now and talk about something a little simpler, blood. Specifically, blood transfusions and what happens when they go wrong. 
So for question two, which of the following is the mechanism of the most likely condition the patient is experiencing? So we have a 65-year-old male who's brought to the emergency department after an episode of hematemesis. He has a past medical history of liver cirrhosis secondary to alcohol use disorder. Vitals show a blood pressure of 85 over 45, pulse of 112, and respirators of 18. His temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. He appears pale. His bleeding is managed with endoscopic manipulation. He's scheduled to receive two units of packed red blood cells. An hour after the transfusion has begun, he complains of chills. Repeated vitals show a blood pressure of 110 over 70, pulse of 104, respirators of 16, and temperature of 102 or 38.8 degrees Celsius. The transfusion is stopped and the patient is given an antipyretic medication. The patient's fever resolves completely after four hours. Your analysis reveals no abnormalities. Which of the following is the mechanism of the most likely condition the patient is experiencing? A. An anamnestic response to a foreign antigen. B. Cytokines released from the donor blood leukocytes. C. Hypersensitivity to a foreign protein in the donor product. Or D. An acute hemolytic reaction. In summary here, we have a patient who received two units of blood an hour ago and now has a fever with otherwise normal vitals and a normal UA. So what do we think is going on? Well, the most likely diagnosis here is a febrile, non-hemolytic transfusion reaction. So looking back at the question, what is the mechanism of a non-hemolytic transfusion reaction? Well, the correct answer is B cytokines released from donor blood leukocytes. Before talking a little bit more about transfusion reactions, let's go through our distracting answers. So A was an anamnestic response to a foreign antigen. Now this is referring to a delayed hemolytic transfusion reaction. And these patients will present with different findings because there's some hemolysis involved. And I'll talk more about that later. Uh, C was referring to a hypersensitivity to a foreign protein in the donor blood product. That sounds more like an allergic reaction because it's a hypersensitivity reaction. Those are IgE mediated, so we wouldn't expect a fever necessarily, but more so some of those typical allergy symptoms. And answer D was an acute hemolytic reaction. Well, again, this patient is not showing any signs of hemolysis and his vitals are stable. The reaction didn't occur till over an hour after the transfusion, so it's not really acute. So this definitely is not the correct answer. So I don't know about you all, but I've always struggled with differentiating between the types of transfusion reactions since they have so many overlapping features. In the past, I've always relied on memorizing a table and a few key buzzwords, but today I'll briefly review each type of transfusion reaction in a way that will hopefully help you to reason through these on the test so you don't have to rely on the memorization of that table again. So going into the overview of transfusion reactions, there are six really testable reactions, and those are allergic, anaphylactic, febrile non-hemolytic, hemolytic, trolley, and taco. Starting with allergic reactions. So these are a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, meaning that they're IgE mediated, and they're reactions to the donor proteins, which are found in the donor's plasma. So since these are IgE mediated, you'll get those classic allergy signs like 
urticaria, which are also known as hives, pruritus, or itching, and you might even see some wheezing. Now, a more severe version of that allergic reaction would be an anaphylactic reaction. So again, this results when the host's immune system, so the, the recipient immune system, recognizes foreign proteins in the donor's plasma, but this time the response is even more robust than with that allergic reaction, and it causes full-on anaphylaxis. On the test, the donor protein that kicks this process off will almost always be IgA, and the recipient who's experiencing this anaphylactic reaction will probably have a long-standing history of IgA deficiency. So in these patients, they've created antibodies to IgA since they're IgA deficient themselves, and that's what kicks off this whole anaphylactic process. They'll probably tip you off in the test by saying something about this patient having a history of mucosal infections or a family history of IgA deficiency if you're really lucky. Since the reaction is all mediated by proteins here, there's no lysis of red blood cells, so you're not going to see any of those signs of hemolysis like you will see in some of the other transfusion reactions. The last thing to mention about these is these reactions can be prevented by quote-unquote washing the blood products, which basically means taking the donor's blood, removing the plasma, and replacing it with something like saline. So the recipient is only getting red blood cells and saline without the plasma and all those accompanying IgA molecules and other proteins. Moving on to our third type of reaction, we have the febrile non-hemolytic reaction. And this is the one that we saw in our patient in the question stem. I like this one the most because really it's all in the name. Febrile because it's characterized by a fever and non-hemolytic because there's no lysine of red blood cells. Now this can be caused by one of two mechanisms. Either there are cytokines that accumulate during the storage of that donor blood and then when those cytokines are transfused into the recipient, it triggers that fever. Or the recipient might have made antibodies against the donor's white blood cells. So it could recognize those white blood cells as foreign and trigger an immunologic response again. Either way, though, you can remember that it's cytokine-mediated because cytokines are the culprit of fever. Also, you can remember that the target of the host antibodies are the donor's white blood cells, not their red blood cells, because there's no lysis of red blood cells here. It's not hemolytic. In contrast, we next have the hemolytic transfusion reaction. And these hemolytic transfusion reactions are pretty serious, and they can come in two different flavors, acute or delayed. Acute is what it sounds like. It happens quickly, and it involves hemolysis. It usually occurs when there is an ABO blood type incompatibility. So the recipient has antibodies against the donor's red blood cells. These patients will typically present with flank pain or hematuria and possibly fever. And this occurs fairly quickly after the transfusion starts. In contrast, you have the delayed hemolytic reaction, which has similar findings of the flank pain, the hematuria, maybe the fever, but it tends to occur days later. In this case, the recipient must have been previously exposed to blood products in the past, and they formed some antibodies to them, but it takes a few days for those memory B cells to generate new antibodies and ramp up the immune response, which is why the reaction is delayed, as opposed to the acute in which the antibodies were preformed. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. We're almost there, just two more to go, so hang with me. Next, we have the transfusion-associated acute lung injury, or trolley. Trolley is basically like acute respiratory distress syndrome, so ARDS, that occurs after a blood transfusion, sparing you the complex pathophysiology that underlies the process of trolley. Let's suffice it to say that trolley occurs when the donor's antibodies stimulates the host neutrophils which then go and attack the host's pulmonary epithelium, causing a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So this is the only type of the transfusion reaction so far in which the process is being kicked off by the donor's antibodies, not the recipient. So patients will be hypoxic, and a chest x-ray will show infiltrates, just like you'll see in any case of ARDS, but their heart won't show signs of strain, so you won't see something like a, an elevated BNP or anything like that because the inflammation is all occurring in the lungs, not due to heart failure. And then last but not least, we have every starving medical student's favorite blood transfusion reaction, TACO, or as it's less satisfyingly known, transfusion-associated circulatory overload. In this reaction, a patient's cardiovascular system is simply overwhelmed by the volume of fluid being transfused. It presents much like that previous reaction trolley with the shortness of breath, but in these patients, there will typically be evidence of heart failure because the patient's circulatory system is simply overloaded, the heart can't keep up. So they'll have evidence of heart failure such as an elevated BNP or strain on an echocardiogram. Before moving on, let's quickly discuss the management of each of these blood transfusion reactions. While the definitive treatment for each reaction depends on what's happening to that individual patient, a great first step in all cases is to stop the transfusion. Even in a mild case, like an allergic reaction, for example, the transfusion maybe could have been continued, but this also could be an initial early presentation of a full-on anaphylactic reaction, so your safest bet is to just stop the transfusion before proceeding. So if the patient has a febrile, non-hemolytic reaction, like our patient in the question stem, well, this can be simply managed with some antipyretic medications such as acetaminophen or Tylenol, that is. Uh, if the patient instead has a, an allergic reaction, so again, a relatively mild allergic reaction, can be managed simply with antihistamines such as diphenhydramine or Benadryl. The more severe version of that allergic reaction being an anaphylactic reaction well, you treat this like any other case of anaphylaxis. Give them IM epinephrine. For a hemolytic transfusion reaction, it's all about keeping that patient hydrated. So giving them lots and lots of IV fluids and possibly even a diuretic. We want to flush out the system there. For cases of trolley, well, these patients are basically in hypoxic respiratory failure. So we want to support them with some CPAP or BiPAP, so positive airway pressure that is. And a lot of these patients, unfortunately, will ultimately require intubation and mechanical ventilation because of the severity of their respiratory failure. And then lastly, how do we treat TACO? Well, again, 
tacos due to just too much volume that overwhelming that circulatory system. So we want to get the volume off as quick as possible. We can use diuretics such as furosemide, or we just encourage the patient to hydrate and make as much urine as possible until they get down to a normal volume. And that's all I have for transfusion reactions. So let's move on to another blood-related question. And this time, though, we'll be looking at a situation that you might encounter when receiving the results of a CBC on the test or a CBC on the wards. So for question three, what is the next best step in evaluation? And our vignette? A 28-year-old female with a history of asthma admitted to the hospital with a severe episode of asthma exacerbation. She reports episodes of cough, productive of brownish sputum, dyspnea, and wheezing. Each episode resolves with IV steroids and albuterol nebulization, followed by methylprednisone. She reports she was diagnosed with asthma at age 12 and has had the condition well-controlled on selmeterol and fluticasone inhaler and albuterol. Recently, though, she started having recurrent asthma exacerbations. She denies any travel. She did start supervising her home construction about five months ago, and since then she's had low-grade fevers and has reported a weight loss of about 10 pounds in the last five months. Her temperature is 100.1 or 37.7 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 128 over 85. Her heart rate is 92 beats per minute, and a respiratory rate is 24. Her lung auscultation reveals a prolonged expiratory wheeze or expiratory phase with diffuse wheezes. The rest of the examination is normal. Her laboratory results reveal a white blood cell count of 12,000, hemoglobin of 10.5, and a platelet count of 430,000. Her neutrophils are about 7,000, lymphocytes of 2,000, and eosinophils of 1,100. Her IgE levels are 550, and just for your reference, that is elevated. A chest radiograph shows bilateral upper zone infiltrates, and a CT scan shows some nonspecific pulmonary nodules in the left upper lobe. What is the next best step in the evaluation of this patient? A. Pulmonary function testing. B. Bronchoscopy. C. Sputum culture. Or D. Start itraconazole. So again, that was a long question stem, so let's review some of those pertinent positives. In summary, we have a young woman who's presenting with recurrent asthma exacerbations, weight loss, and fevers after starting a home construction project about five months ago. Her labs are notable for some mild anemia, leukocytosis with eosinophilia in particular, and an elevated IgE level in the blood. Imaging shows infiltrates and some nodules in the upper lobes of her lungs. So what's going on with this patient? Even if you aren't totally sure at this point, hopefully you're concerned about a chronic infection of some sort. So that brings us back to our interrogatory. What's the next best step in the evaluation of this patient? Or maybe we could say, what's the next step to determine the source of this patient's infection? Well, correct answer here is C, sputum culture. As always, let's uh, rule out our distractors before moving on. Our first distractor is pulmonary function tests, or PFTs. So this patient is already known to have asthma, so we would expect to find evidence of obstruction on PFTs. But in general, PFTs won't tell us anything specific about the infectious etiology of her symptoms. The next distraction is bronchoscopy. Now this is an invasive procedure that can be used to obtain tissue samples, and especially when patients uh, are unable to produce sputum, or they can also be used as a therapeutic intervention in some cases if there's a mucus plug that needs to be removed or 
removal of this foreign body. But in this patient, again, starting with the sputum would be a more appropriate first step. And then lastly, how about D, starting intraconazole? Well, the question first asked us to evaluate the patient, not treat her. And while this patient ultimately will probably end up receiving some antifungal antibiotics, such as itraconazole, she currently has stable vitals, so I think we have a little bit of time to confirm a diagnosis without starting an empiric therapy like this. So that brings us to our final and correct answer, sputum culture. Now this patient is stable and able to produce sputum, so we have time to culture it and identify a culprit organism before starting antibiotics. Even before the culture comes back, though, we should have been able to predict that final diagnosis. What do you think it is? If you said allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, well, you're well on your way to becoming a stud immunologist slash pulmonologist slash infectious disease specialist. So since this is a hematology-focused podcast, though, I'll take this opportunity to briefly review the workup of eosinophilia, and then I'll just mention a couple pearls about allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. So if you have a patient who's presenting with a new fever and the astute student that you are, uh, you, you suggest that we order a routine CBC with differential on that patient. The CBC comes back and it shows 15% eosinophils. Well, now what? Well, normally eosinophils compose less than 5% of the lymphocytes. So eosinophilia like this can be either primary which is due to a malignant process or simply hereditary, but this is pretty rare. Much more common is secondary eosinophilia, and this has a wide differential. Some of the most common causes of a secondary eosinophilia include parasitic or fungal infections, allergies, drug reactions, in particular dress syndrome, and vasculitides such as eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis or as it was formerly known, Churg-Strauss syndrome. How would we work up a patient who comes back with a CBC showing some eosinophilia? Well, as usual, it's all about the history and the review systems, especially looking at which organ systems are involved. For example, if a patient presents with some pulmonary symptoms, you might consider asthma or aspergillosis as the cause of their eosinophilia, like our patient in the question. While if the patient is presenting with skin findings as their main complaint, you might think about something like mycosis fungoides or eczema or even bullous pemphigoid. Finally, before moving on to our final question, I just want to mention a couple things about allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis because this is one of those rare syndromes that does seem to come up on tests so pretty often. On the test, a patient with ABPA will almost certainly have asthma or cystic fibrosis, and they'll be presenting with very frequent exacerbations. The first step, if it's suspected, is to order a skin test or serum IgE levels against aspergillus. But if the patient is producing lots of sputum like our patient in the question, you can confirm the diagnosis with a sputum culture, usually. It's treated with oral steroids, not inhaled, because the patient should be on inhaled steroids anyway if they have long-standing asthma. And you might need to add an antifungal medication, such as one of the azoles, like itraconazole, if the patient's not improving on steroids alone. And for any step one studiers out there, what does aspergillus look like under the microscope? You would expect to see septate hyphae branching at acute angles. That's enough infectious disease, though, for today.
So let's get back to our hematology. And we are actually on to our final question of the day. Which of the following investigations needs to be done to find out the underlying pathology behind this patient's limb swelling? And the question, a 33-year-old woman presents with left lower limb pain and swelling that has been worsening for the past five days. Now she has discoloration of the skin as well as impaired mobility. Her past medical history reveals that she's been having painful small joints of the hands, tiredness, anorexia, gradual weight loss, and intermittent chest pains for over six months. She also reports having a sunburn-type rash on her nose and cheeks, particularly in the summer months. On exam, her blood pressure is 150 over 90, heart rate is 88, and her labs reveal a platelet count of 82,000, an elevated activated partial thromboplasmin time, or APTT, and there's blood of 2 plus in the urine. Which of the following investigations needs to be done to find out the underlying pathology behind this patient's limb swelling? And our answer choices, A, C-reactive protein, B, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibody, C, peripheral angiography, or D, antihistone antibodies. So to summarize this question again, we have a 33-year-old with unilateral leg swelling in the setting of arthralgias, weight loss, intermittent chest pain, and a sunburn-type rash on her nose and cheeks. Her labs are notable for low platelets, an elevated PTT, and on exam, she's hypertensive and has signs of proteinuria. So there's a lot going on with this patient, but hopefully you're concerned at this point about some autoimmune or infectious process. The question specifically asks about her limb swelling, which we can presume is related to a blood clot. So which of the following investigations would yield more information about the underlying pathophysiology of her clot? And the correct answer here is B, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibody. So let's run through some of our distractors. Distractor A was CRP. Now C-reactive protein is a nonspecific marker of inflammation, so it will probably be elevated in this patient but it wouldn't tell us anything about the underlying pathophysiology behind her disease process. The next distractor is peripheral angiography. This again would not really tell us anything about the pathophysiology underlying her symptoms, but it would confirm the presence of a blood clot. And then the last distractor is antihistone antibodies. This is probably the most tempting distractor, but you need to remember that this antibody is found in drug-induced lupus, especially on the test. There are other uh, conditions that can have antihistone antibodies, but again, for the test, just remember this is drug-induced lupus. Now, this patient does have a lot of symptoms of lupus, but there's no mention of any medications that she's been taking recently in the question stem. So it's very unlikely that she's suffering from a drug-induced lupus and more likely has chronic lupus. Now, for our final review of the day, let's talk a little bit about the condition that she is likely suffering from, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Now, this is one of our symptoms of hypercoagulability. So, these patients are always at high risk of increased blood clotting, both in the arterial or venous system. And antiphospholipid antibody syndrome in particular is often associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. It can be primary, in which case the patient has antiphospholipid antibodies but no other autoimmune disorder, or secondary, 
in which case they also have an underlying autoimmune condition, such as lupus. Now, this secondary antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is most commonly associated with lupus. Uh, 10% of patients with lupus will ultimately suffer from antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Though it can also be associated with some chronic infections as well, such as Epstein-Barr virus, syphilis, or hepatitis C. To confirm the diagnosis of this syndrome, you can first look for one of the three antiphospholipid antibodies in the patient's serum. The most common is lupus anticoagulant, which unfortunately is fairly poorly named since it's actually a procoagulant in vivo or in life. It was actually named based on its effects of prolonging the PTT, which is measured in vitro. And it's also not only found in patients with lupus, even though it's called lupus anticoagulant. Now, the other two antiphospholipid antibodies that you might come across are anti-cardiolipin antibodies, or as we saw in this question, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibodies. So what would a patient's labs look like? who is suffering from antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Well, as we mentioned, uh, we will see a prolonged PTT, but the PT will be normal, and the bleeding time and platelet count will likely be normal as well. Now, just to clarify, our patient in the question did have some thrombocytopenia, or low platelets, but this isn't due to the specifically antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, but rather the fact that she also has lupus, which can cause thrombocytopenia. So for a patient with just antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or primary antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, they should only have that elevated PTT, but no other abnormalities when looking at their coagulation cascade. How do we treat patients with this condition? Typically, they'll be on lifelong anticoagulation with warfarin, or if they're pregnant, they can use heparin and aspirin. The direct oral anticoagulants have not yet been approved for this condition. And last but not least, one pearl for your exam that I've seen tested fairly frequently actually is that patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome might have a false positive VDRL when you're looking at their labs. So you might remember that the VDRL is used as a screening test for suspected syphilis. So this can always be a little confusing on the test. Well, that is all I have for today's episode on hematology. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Step 2 Study Smarter series on Inside the Boards. I hope that you all learned something today, and I wish you all the best of luck in your studies.